Okay, we're going to go into Dr. Sue Darham's case. This gentleman is a 54-year-old divorced smoker diagnosed coincidentally with a T3N1 rectal adenocarcinoma that was primarily by CT after he presented with rectal bleeding. I think this was back in 2002. Coincidentally, PSA 41, Gleason 3 plus 4 equals 7, T2A prostate cancer disease. Can you talk a little bit about the man, what his lifestyle was like, his general health state? He actually was doing well, and he fell on some financial hard times. That's why he eventually had enrolled in our primary care system. He had to sell his boat, and he'd lost his significant other, basically. So a lot of bad stuff going on, and now two cancers. So, Anthony, how would you be thinking this through? How was the rectal cancer treated? That's what we want to find out. Oh, he's, he has he's diagnosed with synchronous, rect- synchronous rectal and prostate cancer. And PSA is 41? Correct. And staging? A bone scan was negative for prostate cancer. Okay. And then for the rectal cancer, T3N1, there's no evidence of liver or pulmonary disease. Correct. All right. So he has high-risk prostate cancer and node-positive locally advanced rectal cancer. The treatment for the rectal cancer is either going to be an APR or an LAR. Both of them are going to require either pre- or post-op chemoradiation, given the node-positive and the trans being through the muscular wall. The question then becomes, where, with regard to the anal verge, was this rectal cancer? Was it low-lying or was it more distal? There were no doubts that he was going to have reanastomosis. So I think it was about six to seven centimeters from the verge. So they thought that they could do a coloanal anastomosis. Yes. All right. So then the only question with regard to the rectal cancer is pre or post-op. Some people would like to do pre-op because they feel that that makes them a better candidate for an LAR. And at our institution, that's been the practice, is that we've done pre-op chemoradiation. Now, the issue here is going to be then how do you treat the prostate cancer if you do it pre-op? So if they think they can get a coloanal anastomosis and a good resection allowing us to do the treatment post-op, that would be the preferred route in this case because he's got two primaries you've got to deal with. And I don't like split-course radiation for the prostate cancer, which is what this is going to amount to if we do the treatment for the rectal cancer pre-op. The next question is, would you resect the prostate while you're there doing the rectal surgery? I've been told by urology, and maybe people can comment, that this is not a straightforward procedure when you've got a rectal resection and a prostate resection happening concurrently and trying to make an anastomosis as well, both urethral and coloanal. Nonetheless, I think that given the fact that he's got a PSA of 41, a high-risk disease, I would be okay with a primary radiation hormonal therapy approach, plus his survival from the rectal cancer is about 50%. In fact, he's not further upstaged at the time of surgery. So I'm okay with doing the attempt at the low anterior resection And then he'll get pelvic radiation for both the prostate and the rectum to follow to 4,500. And that's going to be with 5-FU for his rectal cancer. And then he's going to get cone down to the anastomotic area in the rectal bed and the prostate to 5,400, which is your rectal dose. And then a third cone down to the prostate and seminal vesicle area to 5,580 and a final cone down to the prostate. Now you can pick your total dose. Here it could be as little as 70-20 or as much as 75-60, depending upon your comfort level. Given that, you're going to have a brand new 
colon now sitting in there right next to where you're going to be giving your final dose and the colon is even more radiosensitive than the rectum, I would be careful with dose escalation here. This is a moving target now, the colon. It's not fixed because the peritoneal reflections have been removed. And so I would be conservative. I'd probably stop at 70-20 or 72 to the prostate itself. And then, of course, hormonal therapy will be going on concurrently. He's young. And given that he's young, the duration of hormonal therapy in this case, I would actually favor, he's a Gleason 7, but he's a PSA of 41. I think he's going to be upgraded if we took his prostate out. So I would actually favor long-term hormonal therapy here as opposed to short course, which in my mind means combined hormonal blockade up front for a period of four months as per RTOG and then two years of an additional LHRH. It's a lot of treatment, but he's got two cancers. I'd be interested to hear what everyone else has to say. <laughs> I've been waiting for that soliloquy for three weeks since I first heard this case. I was just <laughs> dying here. How it's a cha- for a non-radiation oncologist, what you just described in terms of the radiation therapy sounded pretty complicated. Well, you no, think, it's not that complicated. No, we do this. We've d- we sounds do this. worse than it is. The average radonc in practice would be able to do that, no problem. You'd have to think it through. I mean, the real thing here is whether he can have an LAR without pre-op chemoradiation. If he needs pre-op chemoradiation, you know, then you're stuck a little bit because now you're going to be giving split course, and it's not nearly, we have never proven it's not nearly as good, but theoretically it's not as good. So if you think that you can do a anal anastomosis without preoperative treatment, then that would be the approach I'd take. If you don't think you can do that, then you've got to go with split course. And while it's not ideal, it would be your only other choice. Laurie? First of all, you said he was T3N1. Correct. The N1 is based on what? We actually didn't have ultrasound at the time. It was CT. CT. So, I mean, he's got pelvic adenopathy. But right. why is it rectal and not prostatic? It was perirectal lymph node, too. So. It was perirectal. But, I mean, this guy is at high risk for prostatic adenopathy. So I think there's a basic staging issue that would be worth getting sorted out in terms of what his... How would you sort it out? is from. Well, you'd need... Uh, Got to think this through. <laughs> uh, so the second question is, where in relation to the prostate is this? It's purely not posterior, so it's kind of a more anterolateral-based rectal cancer. So six to seven centimeters, it's more or less sitting on top of his, in the same region as prostate. So from a surgical perspective, it's always appealing to get a two-for-one if you can do it without incurring significant risk. And, you know, in this case, the idea, I think it's certainly feasible to resect both at the same time. We don't really know if it's possible a low anterior anastomosis or an APR. If it's an APR, it's straightforward. You do the APR, you do a standard radical prostatectomy to primary anastomosis. If it's a low anterior resection, then you've got the issue of two anastomoses, one on top of the other. That's an inherently risky situation. You could do it, but probably the safest thing would be to do a temporary colostomy, defunction, wait for it all to heal, and then go back. The other point I just want to add is this guy's in big trouble. I mean, his chance of cure of both is the product of the chance of the cure of each one. And you said 50%? For the rectal cancer. I mean, I defer to you. That's certainly higher for node-positive rectal cancer than I'm used to thinking about, but I'm not up to date in this. But from his prostate cancer with his PSA of 41, Gleason 7, you know, the chance of cure is relatively low. And so his chance of being cured from the prostate cancers and the rectal cancer is half of that. Probably he has a 10 or 15% chance of being cured of both. So the question is how aggressive you want to be 
He is a young guy. He should obviously have some input into this decision. But I would certainly consider, if it was feasible, a single operation to kind of take out both these cancers, do an extended lymph node dissection, and then uh, temporary colostomy if at the time of surgery you thought it was warranted, and see what the pathology shows, and then make a decision based on that. Dan, if he did have positive nodes with rectal cancer, the most common adjuvant therapy would be Fulfox, which include 5-FU with oxaliplatin. Right. We were talking about satriplatin before in prostate cancer and kind of thinking about this issue of cross-coverage. Do we know anything about oxaliplatin in prostate cancer? I don't recall any phase two studies of oxaliplatin. I know cisplatin carbo, you know, the response rate is somewhere around 10 to 20 percent of single agents. So I don't recall that there is a specific study with oxaliplatin. Let's find out what happened with the patient. Suffice it to say, this is a very difficult patient. In fact, we've had two patients with this presentation. He did not want a colostomy, either temporarily or permanently, but the consensus with the surgeon and the urologist was they were not going to do a radical resection and block with both organs. What he did in depth doing, the game plan was neoadjuvant chemorads, and by the way, he wouldn't take anything but Zolota. So he would only take an oral preparation. He was treated with Zolota and pelvic RT, making sure he got about 54 gray to both the rectum and prostate. And at the same time, he was started on Lupron. So he had that, and then he went for initially an APR with temporary diverting ileostomy. He was found to have pathologic T1N0 disease in the rectum. T1N0? He was down, yeah. Oh, good. All right, so. And I'll continue. He was basically kept on Lupron for about two years. He had an APR. He had an APR about three to four months later, reanastomosed, and at that point went ahead and did a seed implant for his prostate. And at this point, he was maintained on Lupron. He also had adjuvant Zolota-based therapy for the initial disease. I think T3N1 kind of predicated that the medical oncologist was going to treat him adjuvantly following APR. At that time, I think it was about four months later, almost five months before he had the seed implant boost, and I recognize the delay there in therapy, but he was reanastomosed, had a seed implant, and then maintained on Lupron. For about two years is the Lupron now. That brings us to a point in about 2004, I think, when he was lost to follow-up for a year. So he comes back with a normal CEA, normal workup for his rectal cancer, and his PSA has risen to four. Negative imaging studies, bone scan and CT scanning, kind of intermittent follow-up, PSA is now nine. For what it's worth, we got a prostasense study, and we had calculated during his return to follow-up for a PSA doubling time about less than 12 months, about nine to 10 months. By now, he'd stopped his Lupron once he came back for follow-up, I mean, after he was lost for about a year, did not want to go back on hormonal therapy due to quality of life issues. What were those issues? Hot flashes, primarily, lack of libido. Amazingly, it had some return of libido and erectile function, despite two years of LHRH. So right now, we're left with a patient rising PSA, asymptomatic, absence of disease noted on imaging studies for his prostate cancer, normal CEA. He's actually not been treated with anything as of yet. Laurie, quite the saga. What would you be thinking about at this point, and what do you think about this course? I'm still a little confused that he didn't want a colostomy, but he had an APR. Permanent. He didn't want a permanent colostomy. He didn't want a permanent colostomy. So, Hence yeah. his drive to do neoadjuvant no matter what. Right, right. I think he's had what sounds like a very rational approach to his management. 
And the outcome is kind of what I would have expected, which is that one of these two cancers was likely to recur. And he had a very good response to the neoadjuvant treatment with downstaging and probable cure of his rectal cancer. And his prostate cancer has recurred, which is kind of what you'd expect. So now it's the management of radiation failure, basically. What about the man doesn't want to receive an LHR agonist? What about bicalutamide monotherapy in this situation? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, if hot flushes are the major problem, they can usually be managed. In Canada, we have cyproton acetate, which at low dose is very good, pretty much abolishes hot flashes, not available in the States. There's a number of kind of natural products like evening primrose oil and black cohosh that have some phytoestrogens and reduce hot flashes. So they can usually be dealt with. But having said that, yeah, I think for the patient who really doesn't want to go on LHRH, absolutely, Casadex 150 is a very good option. Preserves bone mineral density. He's going to have to put up with gynecomastia or have some prophylactic treatment to prevent it. Any final comments, Anthony, about the case? Well, you know, first of all, congratulations on dealing with a very tough case. You basically did exactly what I had chatted about. Use seeds as opposed to IMRT to dose escalate, but that's fine. You can dose escalate in a number of ways. The PSA of 41 and the Gleason 7 palpable disease and the doubling time, as you said, that sounds like it's about nine months, puts you into the situation we just heard about here. So he's going to go down that course where the median survival from the time of PSA failure till death with a PSA doubling time of nine months is about eight or nine years. So, you know, it's not a short time. He's got time. But, you know, the hormonal therapy piece here, it's certainly his choice. We use estrace, and some people use Effexor to deal with hot flashes. And I really would have that conversation with him because I think that, you know, using Casadex 150 is fine, but this is not the exact setting in which it was studied. I think a more traditional approach to hormonal therapy probably would be reasonable. But he's going to end up on the same thing, the bisphosphonate and eventually the systemic chemotherapy down the road. But, you know, I think that luckily this rectal cancer was downstaged, but unfortunately is with a PSA of 41. He had micrometastatic disease from the beginning, but you did everything right. So... There's not much else one could say at this point. Dr. Denis? Yeah, two comments on the Casadex 150. One of the problems that we run into, at least in our practice, is the cost of that. You know, many of the insurance companies, of course, will argue and scream and won't cover it. And even if it was just the 50 milligrams, it's about $300 a month. So that at 150 milligrams a day, that's about a $900 a month whack to the patient, which is very difficult for some folks unless they happen to have some sort of Part D coverage. But even under those programs, those are very regulated or very regimented, and then they're not going to allow that because that's not an FDA-approved protocol. I have another comment, though, on an option where we see the radiation failure. And in fact, we've had a couple of patients that have had, say, low anterior resections, and we're dealing with staple lines in the backside of the prostate. That disease may have been four or five years down the road, gone, and now they've developed a prostate cancer. So it wasn't exactly synchronous, but many of those problems are the same. And in any event, in this gentleman who's had the seeds and his PSA has gone back up, clearly with a PSA of 41, to your point, he probably had or very well could have had micrometastatic disease. But one also has to wonder how effective was the treatment locally and is there just recurrent disease and is it worthwhile doing some sort of a biopsy on the prostate now and going back and treating it locally, particularly in a man who's refusing or doesn't want to go back on LHRH analogs? 
I don't know what the odds are of him simply having local failure and that being responsible for the majority of his recurrence. But But this guy, I would really be against further local therapy. I mean, first of all, the chances that it's going to succeed is low based on his baseline PSA. But I mean, he's doing pretty well. It would not take much further local treatment to turn him into a disaster. Because that anastomosis falls apart. You know, you give him cryo or salvage anything, and that rectal anastomosis falls apart, and you've got a catastrophe on your hands, a radiated field, poor blood supply because he's already had, you know, surgery plus rads plus whatever else you're going to do. So this guy, to me, should not have his pelvis had anything further done to it unless you have no choice. Well, you know, just to be controversial, then I would suggest that at least the offer of trying to find out does he have disease, is it multifocal within the remnant prostate gland, or is it in fact focal and is it in an area that might be safe to treat because it's not on the posterior aspect of the prostate, it's not near that anastomosis, and is that worthwhile? And of course, this is a controversial area in urologic circles now doing the transperineal biopsies and mapping the prostate itself. I mean, maybe you're only dealing with 15 or 20 grams of tissue to begin with because it's small, it's been irradiated, it's had hormonal treatment. But nonetheless, if you're able to localize recurrent disease to one or two nodules, is that then worth it to go after? So to the point, and this is not something you'd know because it's not published yet, there is a paper soon to be published, which is two papers. It's a review article of salvage local therapy for presumed local failure. You're looking at radical prostatectomy, cryo, and brachy. And then there's a phase two study in which people were prospectively followed. We got salvage brachytherapy, and they looked at what the prognostic factors were prior to treatment to predict for failure. Now, Peter Scardino also has this data for the salvage prostatectomy. And in both his series, this series with brachytherapy, the things that have emerged as PSA level over 10 is an adverse predictor for control after further local therapy. And then the new one, which is not really new, we know it is doubling time. So this gentleman has both a high PSA and a short doubling time. And I have to say that I've run prospective studies for salvage brachytherapy in this setting, and that's the paper that's going to get published. And in our hands, where we use MRI-guided brachytherapy, where we only implant a subvolume of the prostate, where we do saturation biopsy and look to see just where the recurrence is, In people who have had prior, you know, seed or prior, in this case, prior pelvic radiation and seed, we actually haven't done any of those, but this guy had both treatments, that even in very good hands with very careful planning, excellent physics in OR dosimetry, there's a 15% colostomy rate. There is a 5% radiation prostatitis rate, and there's a 15% radiation cystitis rate. And those numbers are actually good compared to what you see when you look at Peter Scardino, good friend, excellent surgeon, urinary incontinence in his hands for salvage prostatectomy, you know, was a third. Not stress, but complete urinary incontinence. Now, you could put a sphincter in, I guess, as well. But So I think that Dr. Klotz's point is that this is a potentially very morbid setting. Now, if his PSA was 11, and he had a Gleason 3 plus 4, and his doubling time was 15 months, then I completely agree with you. We'd go in and we'd do the saturation biopsy, and then we'd have this discussion with him, which is, we think it may only be local, good chance that it is. Here's the side effect profile of what you look at with these salvage local approaches. And now I have a special consent form for this protocol that people go through for the things I just said. Then some patients will still decline, and that's fine, but they have to go with both eyes wide open because this is really 
not an approach without significant potential for toxicity and quality of life. Now, this man who's had, you know, all the things he's had with the rectal surgery, with the pelvic and the seed therapy, and the unfavorable numbers, it just doesn't make sense in my mind to go that potential salvage local route. Although, I hear what you're saying, and you're being an advocate for the patient, you want to give them every chance, but I've watched people suffer the side effects of salvage local therapies, even in the best of circumstances, and so it's humbled me a bit. Hmm. Okay. Any other questions? Just one follow-up on that. When you're doing the saturation biopsies or trying to map it or trying to localize it, in your group, how are they doing that? Are they doing that transrectally, or are they doing it through the perineum? Are they doing it through the previously irradiated field, through the rectum? Under anesthesia, under general anesthesia, in an MRI unit, transperineal, so not through the previous radiated field, and, you know, literally doing 40 to 50 biopsies. So it's done with all the caveats you just named. And so I think the information you bring forth is important. I just have to be clear that having studied it and having experienced it myself, even in excellent candidates and young men, he's young, but he's a smoker. And one other thing I'll bring up too is that there were two other factors that predicted for radiation proctopathy, smoking and anticoagulants, so Coumadin, aspirin, et cetera. So he's also at us. I don't know if he had radiation proctopathy from his original radiation or not, but... Very mild. Mild, okay. Well, probably because his rectum left, but, <laughs> you know, the otherwise he, he could have had that, that issue as well. Okay. Any other questions? 